This is Caught in the Act with Tim Clark. Welcome back. It is the most famous wig in Australian crime. A hairpiece so ridiculous it earned its wearer more nicknames than he had already. The Rug Lord, the Rug Father, Big Wig, otherwise known as Fat Tony, Antonius Saji Mockbell. With tentacles in so many dodgy pies, he earned another nickname, the Octopus. Mockbell is widely regarded as the organiser of most of Melbourne's methamphetamine business. He had links to most of that city's underbelly, including Carl Williams. He was charged with murdering two of those underbelly characters, Louis Moran and Michael Marshall. And then, in 2006, he became Australia's most wanted, after he went on the run, absconding from Fremantle, dressed as a priest on a specially designed yacht which harboured him all the way to Greece. Which is where he was eventually caught, a year later, complete with a tan, a beard and that wig. He has been back in Australia and back in prison for years. But this week, and many weeks to follow, he has been back in court, in a bid to have his convictions overturned, while turning the Victorian justice system inside out in the process. Joining us this week to comb through the criminal history of Tony Mockbell and his extraordinary claims about the lawyer who used to defend him is Catherine Dowling, who, according to Doyle's Guide, is simply one of Perth's best lawyers. Thanks for joining us, Catherine. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, my learned friend, as a scene setter, uh, as a criminal defence barrister, you obviously have to have some dealings with alleged criminals and police every day. What do those interactions look like on a week-to-week basis? Well, I meet and um, correspond with the alleged criminals or become my clients. Um, I deal with the police and the lawyers at the DPP. So the DPP is the Department of Public Prosecution, which is the government agency that deals with all serious criminal offences. And I appear in court, um, in the Magistrates Court and District Court and Supreme Court on behalf of my clients. That's an amazing variety of work, it sounds like. Different people every day, different clients every day, different allegations every day. It is. Look, it's, um, you know, the full gamut. It's murder, drugs, sex, and it is fascinating. So I think it's the most interesting job in the world. I don't think I could do anything else. Mm. But a job unlike any other, would you say? I mean, you know, as you say, murder, drugs and sex, and that's that can be before lunchtime some days. <laughs> <laughs> it has been in the last week or so. Um, <laughs> look, I think that it's certainly different to any other type of um, law, that's for certain. I used to be a commercial lawyer and that was deadly boring compared to me. So <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sure there are some, you know, some pretty amazing other professionals out there like paramedics, you know, to be fair to the police, they're dealing with the, the flip side of all of this. Um, and other, you know, medical professionals who deal with this type of work. So, but look, it is, um, it's, it's certainly colourful. So, on that flip side, Tony Mockbell's day-to-day dealings with Australian police didn't begin early in his life, as his life was not in Australia. 
It was in Lebanon and Kuwait until he moved to the inner Melbourne suburb of Brunswick with his family in 1974, aged just eight years old. The family felt safe, away from the political wranglings of their homeland. But young Tony did not feel secure. He could not speak English, and so he struggled in school, and he was teased, even with his apparent enthusiasm and some talent on the football field. His mother worked at a local meat factory, his father down the road at Ford. There was love, affection and support. Until the day of Tony Mockbell's 16th birthday, when his father suddenly and tragically died of a heart attack. According to subsequent tellings, his mother never really recovered and cried for years. Young Tony, up until then, battling but honest, slid slowly, inexorably off the rails. In Mockbull's own words, his father's passing left him dirty on the world. A first conviction followed, aged 18, for a street fight. Some work, including the management of a pizza shop alongside his brother, trickled in. But also came a new fascination in a formulaic, reckless and thrilling pastime, gambling, which was to quickly turn into addiction, which led to debts, which led to a need to pay them, which led to drugs. In 1992, a friend of Mockbell's got sprung with a batch of the bad stuff. Mockbell thought he might try and bribe a county court judge to make a potential prison sentence go away. Instead, Mockbell was sent away for a, another prison stint. On his release, he picked up where he left off. His so-called tracksuit gang became feared for hitting bookies on track and off with huge amounts of cash bets. Where the cash was coming from was wondered about rather than asked out loud. And in 1997, a massive drug lab, conservatively worth $80 million, exploded after a tin of solvent was knocked over, ignited and went boom, blowing Mockbell out of the front door. He survived unscathed, physically and criminally. Another man inside was charged and served four years, but never gave up Mockbell's name. And out of the wreckage, Mockbell knocked down the damaged lab, knocked through to a neighbouring property and renovated, making a tidy profit in the process. Catherine, obviously, Tony Mockbell is one out of the box, but without breaching any privileges, you must go from home from work some days incredulous at the things people do and then what they say afterwards. Look, absolutely. People are hilarious. I do have quite a dark sense of humour and, you know, some, probably some pretty big kahunas. But I do think that any ordinary person would find some of these stories and some of these behaviours as comically bad. I mean, Tony is next level. And the, <laughs> and the rug alone. I mean, seriously, mate, did you think no one was guessing you were wearing a wig? <laughs> exactly. How did you think that was going to end? <laughs> so, look, I think one of the most commonly used phrases we use in criminal law, regardless of where you are, you know, defence, prosecution on the bench is... What were you thinking? 
and I mean, and you have to get into that psyche in in some way in order to do your job, which is either provide a defence or, in, in sentencing terms, you know, give some context to the behaviours that have led that person to that moment in that time. So, what were you thinking? True. Is not just a, not it's not just a you know a, a, an idle question. That is there's actually something that you really need to know. Hundred percent, and I think that. What you've just done by painting the story of the development of, I guess, Tony Mockbell's story and how it started is one of the key things that we have to do as defence lawyers because we're storytellers, you know. We have to explain the whys. They have to explain the hows. And I think what I have learned over the years and what I always keep in mind is that we don't all end up like Tony Mockbell, but almost all of us make mistakes. And I think the really interesting part, almost the philosophically interesting part of the job is that we all have a bit of darkness too. It just kind of depends on the context as the extent to which that darkness comes out. And I think that anyone, given the right circumstances, and that's anyone, can actually commit a crime. And you've been involved in, in deeply involved actually in defence cases involving large amount of drugs and, and we know and you know we both hear it every day and and you know anyone who pays attention to the news hears is every day this you know the, the the scourge particularly methamphetamine has on the community but as a defense lawyer does the, the the amount of drugs increase the pressure on you to try and either um you know get a an acquittal or you know, tell the best story you can because the sentences now, particularly in Western Australia, are so high for large amounts of, of, of drugs that are imported and, and, and sold. Look, it does and it also doesn't at the same time. In principle, every client that you deal with is deserving of due care and diligence. And to be honest, sometimes the pressure can depend upon the client because for some people, that driving charge or careless driving charge can utterly upend their world, and obviously, you know, for the victim as well. And some of the simplest driving matters that I've been involved in, in some ways, have been the most challenging because the clients have struggled so much. And on the flip side, some of the most notorious people I've acted for have been, you know, to be completely honest, delightful to deal with <laughs> and taken the sting out of the work. But I guess, obviously, having said that, drug matters, those huge, large-scale drug matters, involve thousands and thousands of hours of work. And mm. as you said, the stakes are high because people will go to jail potentially for the rest of their lives if they're convicted. So you know, there is more pressure involved in those types of matters. There must be. But that's in terms of workload because I... I know, you know, you've told me and, you know, many of your contemporaries have told me the sheer volume of material that you have, you get sent by either the DPP or Commonwealth prosecutors. I mean, to the, to the, to the normal person like me who, you know, likes to read, but doesn't particularly like to read thousands and thousands of pages. Um, you not only have to read them, you have to digest them and then make sense of them and and also look for flaws in them as well. It's a, It can be a pretty, pretty massive undertaking. It can be. Um, I've got a few matters like that at the moment and they're huge. <laughs> um, and you've got to remember that 
you are, as a defence lawyer, sometimes you have a team of lawyers working with you, but usually no more than perhaps two or three. And that you're kind of the David and Goliath situation where Mm. the Goliath is the state um, or the Commonwealth and huge resources. So they can easily drown an accused person and their lawyers with material. And that is part of the reason why it does take matters so long to get to trial because everyone needs time in which to digest the material. And there have been a number of cases, very high-profile cases, where um, I have to say the Commonwealth in particular have dumped huge amounts of significant evidence on an accused person and their lawyers halfway through the trial. And it's, it's impossible to do your job properly if you don't have proper time in which to consider the evidence and then provide advice to your client about what that evidence can mean for them. So, back to Tony Mockbell. To the untrained eye, he was an Australian success story. Son of immigrants with no English, battling his way to success and wealth, a beautiful house, gleaming fast cars, a string of businesses, even a few racehorses. By the start of the new millennium, he had control of no less than 38 different companies, including a fashion label called LSD, Love, Style and Design. He had multiple luxury cars, including one with the plates R-U-D, a little middle finger to those who had started watching him. Those police looking closer could plainly see that the cash coming in from those businesses, as numerous as they were, should not be able to cover all those lavish costs. And in 2000, Mockbell was believed to have been the brains behind a staggering importation from Serbia of pseudoephedrine, the precursor chemical so sought after by drug lords the world over. Enough, in this case, to make $2 billion worth of amphetamines. Mockbell was caught on tape boasting that he had taken delivery of one 550-kilogram consignment and another was on the way. He was heard revealing that he sold one of the 25-kilo tubs of pseudoephedrine for $500,000 and that he had 21 of them left. There were other alleged importations as well. A tonne of MDMA powder here, three tonnes of hash there and also a couple of kilos of cocaine coming in from Mexico hidden in candles and ornaments. A drop in the ocean, in Tony's terms, the profit of $105,000 described by the man himself as mere rent money. But it was those candles with the coke inside which got Tony Mockbell locked up again. The receiver of the drugs got picked up, and then so did Mockbell, after officers heard him admitting he was the money man behind that importation. After that the allegations kept coming, over that ephedrine importation in particular. But, innocent until proven guilty, Mockbell is granted bail. Several bails, actually. And to achieve that, he needed a lawyer. Multiple lawyers, in fact. Tony Mockbell loved a second legal opinion, and almost always got one. But there was one lawyer he talked to about all his cases, and the rest of his life. And her name was Nicola Gobbo. Catherine, would you agree that from the outside, the lawyer-client relationship appears to be entirely unique? You are being paid, of course, but you're also being tasked with becoming, for some time, the most important contact in this person's life. 
because given the right circumstance, this person's freedom could rely um, almost entirely in your hands. Look, I, I think you're giving me and my colleagues a little bit too much credit, to be honest, Tim. And really, the, the egos in this field are large enough as it is. <laughs> Look, you do obviously need to take the job very seriously, but it's important to keep in mind that you can't change evidence. My colleagues, Kurt Hoffman, often has to remind me if I get too um, wound into a case that I can only work with what I've got. And I can use my skill and as much hard work as I can throw in to try to weave the evidence into a compelling narrative, but ultimately it's the evidence that's got to tell the story. So, um, I mean, that does go both ways. It can go in favour of the prosecution, but it can also go in favour of the accused if the evidence doesn't stack up. Does it become hard sometimes not to become too invested in that case and in that person? I mean, having done long trials before, you can almost see the pressure on the shoulders of the person as they walk in, and particularly on a Monday morning when it would appear from the outside that there hasn't been much of a break or a work-life balance in that uh, in that Friday to Sunday time because, as you say, emails can come in at all hours of the day or night and uh, the right to disconnect might not be uh, you know, overly uh, um, doable as a, as a lawyer, particularly with those, uh, with those clients relying on you so much. Look, I mean, that is a, a tricky one for me, as I'm sure it is for many of my colleagues, because if I am honest, I, <laughs> if I'm in trial or on a sentencing hearing, I am utterly invested and I become obsessive and um, singular and um, by the time that Friday comes around, I am a shell of a human being. <laughs> um, but I am also fortunate because I have other interests outside of work and I'm pretty good at compartmentalising my work. I will work from home um, if I have to and I'll do long hours at the office, but I try to leave work at work um, and when I'm at home, I try to leave it behind. And that seems to me, I mean, it's, a, it's an important skill in journalism, that as well, because you can sometimes get so wrapped up in a story or if you've been covering a trial and, you know, you let it bleed over the, uh, the doorstep at home, it can, it can cause problems. Um, so, you know, being able to just switch off even for a, a couple of hours, is that, is that a skill that you've, you, you need when you go into the job or uh, you attain as you do it? I think a bit of column A, a bit of column B there, to be honest. I think you do mm. have to have the personality that can do that already. Um, and you do learn over time to do that more and more, particularly because, you know, we've been laughing about how absurd people can be in Tony Mockbell, but there are victims of crime and mm. Um, mm. terrible stories. And um, the victims of crime extend, obviously, to the victims themselves, but also the victims' families and also to the offender's family as well. So it's cliched, but almost always there are no winners in these types of matters. So you have to be able to have an innate ability to leave it behind, um, but it does come with time as well. Well, Nicola Gobbo was never your archetypal lawyer, although her family were steeped in law. The niece of Sir James Gobbo, a Supreme Court Justice and later Governor of Victoria, the young Nicola was educated at a private Catholic school for girls and then Melbourne University. A gifted student, 
also with a gift for finding trouble and tragedy. In 1991, she was socialising with a young Collingwood star called Darren Mullane before he got in his car, which later collided with a truck, killing him. In 1993, she was present when police raided the house she was sharing with a drug dealer and fined 1.4 kilos of amphetamines and 350 grams of cannabis. Not a great look for a third-year law student. So, she cooperates with the police, leading officers to the drugs, and leading her to escape with no conviction. In 1997, she is admitted to practice law, with her best subject in graduating having been ethics. A year later, in 1998, she was the youngest woman admitted to the Victorian Bar, and as a rising star in Melbourne's legal circles and a striking blonde woman in a sea of grey-haired men, she attracted both bizarre and high-profile clients. Melbourne identities, drug dealers, traffickers, gangsters and killers, all alleged to begin with, of course. And one of those was Tony Mockbell, on bail already for serious charges, while police were still hugely interested in his movements. Those movements weren't typical of someone already facing serious drug charges because authorities would eventually allege that while on that bail, Mockbell would be involved in the import of more than 30 kilograms of ecstasy and be integral in the arrangements of a separate shipment of 100 kilos of ecstasy. But first, those allegations surrounding those cocaine-stuffed candles from Mexico, where Gobbo would be at the bar table trying to get him off. A clear enough task. A defence lawyer defending their client. Except for one thing. Nicola Gobbo was not only a defence lawyer. She was a police informant, registered as such with the Victorian police since 1995. Then again in 1999, and finally, and most crucially, in 2005. A lawyer being paid to defend clients, taking their information taking their trust, and then betraying it by taking that information to the police. Catherine, as a defence lawyer, talk the listeners through your thoughts on what Nicola Gobbo was doing, acting as a police informant on her own clients for nearly 17 years. Look, it is an extraordinary, extraordinary story on so many levels. Nicola Gobbo has been has borne the brunt of countless discussions, debates, podcasts, a royal commission, and all of them have very properly questioned her motivation and condemned her conduct, um, justifiably so. The royal commission described it, I think, as um, appalling. But I think it's important to keep in mind that Nicola Gobbo is one woman, and in my mind, certainly, I think perhaps the more significant culpability in all of this is the Victorian police force. That was an institution (laughs) that facilitated and then sustained that conduct over that period of time. And if you think about the collective minds, the number of people that were involved in that decision-making process over such a length of time, in my mind, that is, in fact, what truly beggars belief. Mm. Look, she provided the information, but 
the police were the ones who ultimately decided to use that tainted information as admissible evidence at trials, and they knew that she was misleading their clients and mm. appearing for them in trials. Mm. And they kept going, and they kept going, and they kept going. And explain to our listeners how that action so undermines the principle of a, of a fair trial. Look, um, I could spend all day explaining what a fair <laughs> trial is. <laughs> Noutless, countless um, books and judicial opinions on this, and that would bore the socks out of all of the listeners. Um, but in simple terms, a fair trial is this phrase that we use, but it is effectively the central pillar of our criminal justice system here. We all expect a fair trial in Australia. Uh, we're not Russia, we're not China. Um, it's a central tenet of how we conduct our criminal justice system. And it means many things. There are many principles involved in it, so presumption of innocence, the right to an independent judiciary. And I guess the relevant ones in relation to Gobbo is that you are, and I am simplifying it here, but you have a right to be represented by competent counsel and you have a right to only be tried in a court of law on lawfully um, obtained evidence. So, again, in simple terms, Nicola Gobbo wasn't properly representing her clients. She was snitching. She wasn't telling them that she was snitching. <laughs> and they had a right to know that she was snitching before they decided to use her. And that kind of summary of that is I understand the basis on which some of the convictions have now been overturned and I understand that is what Mock Bell is putting forward in his current appeal. The phrase that fruit from the poison tree gets uh, sort of rolled out semi-regularly in, 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 in trials and hearings which is the notion that if you take, even if all your other evidence is solid, and you've, but you use a couple of bits that either you shouldn't have or you've got by nefarious means, um, it, it casts a doubt on, on everything else that you present before a jury, right? It can. It can. And I understand that is um, one of the arguments that was being put forward by one of Gobbo's previous clients, um, in an appeal, basically she had provided the police with information and evidence, which evidence was then later used in a trial. Um, but I understand the Supreme Court in Victoria recently determined that that tainted evidence or poisoned fruit, as you put it, actually wasn't sufficient to result in a miscarriage of justice because all of the other evidence against the uh, offender was so compelling that he would have been convicted in any event. But you're right, as a general rule, um, it can, you know, sully the waters. And, I mean, you touched on it before, but and I struggled to get my head around it while I was reading up ready for today and looking at the Royal Commission papers and some of the evidence of, of the even of the most senior of Victorian police. I mean, what could they possibly have been thinking at the time to uh, to warrant the decision to not only um, get Gobbo on the books but keep her on there for so long? Look, I think, I think you do at a certain level need to be fair to the Victorian police and it's easy for us now um, retrospectively to say that to an extent, but 
we have to remember that at the time in Victoria in the kind of late 90s, early noughties, there was a war. It mm. was an outright war. It felt like every few months that someone was being shot in front of their children, in, an, in a restaurant, in broad daylight. And the police had no control. Um, they were, it was lawlessness. And they were desperate. And the public were terrified. And I think probably at that point, everyone felt that the ends justified the means. And, and the reality is that Gobbo's information was effective intelligence and it was resulting in convictions, which was seen as a positive outcome for everyone. But <laughs> obviously, as demonstrated now, that was such a short-sighted approach because, well, I mean, I think it's obvious that her cover was always going to get blown. I mean, it was the type of information that she was providing as well as the length of time in which she was doing it. I mean, I understand that Carl Williams at the end uh, pretty much guessed that Gobbo was an informant and mm -hmm. advised Mock Bell not to mm -hmm. trust her any further. So it was always going to come out. Um, you know, she wasn't being able to, you know, retain that secret identity. It was always going to come out that she was an informant. And those convictions, in my view, were always going to be tainted as a result of that decision. So, I mean, look, I understand that police did um, effectively avoid receiving legal advice about whether or not it was a sensible decision to do. <laughs> and that came out at the Royal Commission. Indeed. And I think it is also worth mentioning that despite all the recommendations and the findings of the Royal Commission, which described the Victorian police's conduct as reprehensible, not a single Victorian police officer has been charged as a result of any of this. So, yeah, it's, it's an extraordinary situation. As what is known as a human source, Nicola Gobbo became known to her handlers as 3838. She also became more than a gold mine, a, a diamond mountain, an emerald fountain, the Greta Garbo of grasses. The crimes her clients were committing, how police could get those clients to roll over, defence tactics she intended to use in court, how strong those cases were, mobile phone numbers, car regos, addresses, code names, code words, she gave them all. And one of those police really wanted was Tony Mockbell. In her very first meeting with the Source Development Unit, the Victorian Police's clearinghouse for informants, this was their opening gambit. Tell me everything you know about Tony Mockbell. They wanted him for the drugs, they were after him for murder, specifically involvement in the slaying of underbelly rivals Lewis Moran and Michael Marshall. And he knew they did, because Nicola Gobbo had told him so. While in late 2005, she sat in court helping Tony defend those cocaine candle charges. She was also feeding police everything. Witness statements, Mockbell's view about the jury, even her opinion that he had no defence. As the trial progressed, she also let police know he might be up to something else as he had told her not to contact him that weekend. Two days later, in the middle of the trial, Mockbell disappeared in one of the most replayed runners ever done 
in Australian legal history. Hiding out first in the Victorian hamlet of Bonnie Doon. Where? Going to Bonnie Doon. Mockbell was then somehow sneaked over the border here into Western Australia. Mockbell lived in Scarborough, renting rooms at two resorts, while a yacht was being prepared in Fremantle. It was late 2006. By the end of November, he was gone, leaving Geraldton bound for Greece. A 17-metre sloop with separate sleeping quarters and a separate toilet for the man on the run. And the story goes that that man donned a priest's outfit as the yacht slid out of Frio, bound for Europe. It was not an easy voyage. Mockbell's bunk was built into the front of the yacht, so he copped every movement, every wave, consigning him to months of his own vomit. But Mockbell endured, because the alternative was his own cell in a Victorian prison for most of the rest of his life. Left behind were his multitude of charges and his seemingly loyal lawyer. Joining him, eventually, would be his pregnant girlfriend, who embarked on her own cross-planet passage, eluding the police forces of several countries as she did so. Eventually, Tony Mockbell alighted on a Greek island, and one of the first persons he contacted was his lawyer, Nicola Gobbo, who was still talking to police. Catherine, I can't think why they would want to run away from you, but have you ever had a client do a runner on you? And if so, did you try and help police find them? Look, I have had numerous clients do runners. Sometimes I think it's almost weekly. Um, And I have never assisted the police in trying to find them. Happily for me, that's a (laughs) no-brainer. Police do their job, I do mine. Given the situation, hypothetically, would you would you try would you try and talk the client out of doing the runner? I provide my clients with pretty standard legal advice. Um, they can choose to take my advice or not, um, and I don't know what they're going to do. I'm not inside their heads. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't second guess them. That's not my job. It's my job to provide them with legal advice and. It's a matter for them whether or not they want to follow it. And there's all sorts of rules that actually lawyers have to follow in terms of, you know, privileged information, obviously not not giving it to the police, hopefully, but, um, you know, stringent um, conditions on how you must behave inside court and out, right? Yeah, so it's got a, a highfalutin name, but we commonly refer to it as the conduct rules, and they mm-hmm. that's legislation that governs us. And it is hardcore. And that that may be hard for people to believe, you know, in light of what happened with Nicola Gobbo. And they did make some amendments to the legislation in the past few years, but that's what we call the uniform law that um, governs all lawyers across Australia now. And that is something that we have to follow all the time. And it not only does it mean that we could stop being um, lawyers and struck off, but it also means that we can be charged with criminal offences. And that has happened, and it's happened in recent times in Western Australia where a lawyer was charged with perverting the course of justice. I mean, that all ended up in going in a slightly different direction, but it, it happens. So I think 
we're all very conscious of the outcomes because we work with the outcomes every single day. So the Nicola Gobbo thing, in my experience, is a, is a highly unusual situation. For more than a year, Tony Mockbell, while speaking to Nicola Gobbo on the phone now and again, was enjoying the high life on the down low in a beautiful corner of the Mediterranean. And all the while, Gobbo was keeping in touch with him and with her handlers. Until eventually, Greek police and Australian investigators combined to track down Mockbell at one of his favourite restaurants, wearing, obviously, that famous wig. His lawyer was contacted again for advice about what charges he was facing and the extradition hearings to come. She advised Mockbell and then advised the police to such an extent that they used the information to secure his extradition back to Australia. And when he was back, Mockbell eventually pleaded guilty to three sets of allegations against him, involving vast amounts of drugs in return for even more charges being dropped. He was jailed for 30 years, which is where he has been ever since. Until this week. Melbourne drug kingpin Tony Mockbell is fighting to be freed from jail over the Lawyer X scandal, claiming it was Nicola Gobbo's idea for him to flee overseas. This week, and for the next 10 weeks, the Victorian Supreme Court has begun hearings in anticipation of Mockbell appealing against all that prison time, solely on the basis that all those convictions were unfair because his lawyer was informing on him, betraying his trust. He has already had some time knocked off his sentence because of Nicola Gobbo's actions, and he has made some startling allegations already against his former lawyer and friend. That she actively pursued him as a client, that it was she who actually encouraged him to do a runner to Greece, and even that Carl Williams eventually told him not to trust her. And some other major convictions of more serious crime targets have been wiped out altogether, also because of what Nicola Gobbo did. What she did was summed up after the Royal Commission that Catherine has talked about, which was held in 2019 and 20. They concluded that something had gone catastrophically wrong within the Victorian justice system. This is what Commissioner Margaret McMurdo AC concluded about Nicola Gobbo and Tony Mockbell. Ms Gobbo's conduct likely violated her professional legal obligations to Mr Mockbell. Her claim that she was motivated to assist police because she was affronted by Mr Mockbell's criminal activities is no excuse for her behaviour. The criminal justice system could not function if lawyers took on the role of deciding if clients deserved to be informed on to police in breach of their professional obligations to those clients and the administration of justice. That conduct has currently placed more than 1,000 convictions at risk, including more than a dozen secured over one of the largest ecstasy seizures in the world, found inside a shedload of tomato cans. Catherine, I find it staggering that the actions of one lawyer could have had such a profound impact on so many levels. Look, you're right, it is staggering. It's it's such an extraordinary situation and I think the Royal Commission and um, various judgments have 
said that there's this is literally unprecedented in the world. Mm-hmm. But I do tend to think that Gobbo, to an extent, has become a bit of a blame hound because there was a lot of collective crazy going on here. So, I mean, what were they all thinking, Tim? What were they all thinking? Well, I, I, see, I, I don't think they were. Or as, as you mentioned yesterday, they, they were so blinded by the so-called... Um, you know, collective good of what they were doing. And, you know, Gobbo in her evidence to the Royal Commission said it was Mockbell in particular that prompted her to do what she was doing because he was she was sick of basically, you know, committing these massive crimes and, and getting away with it. Um, but ironically, she was part of the issue in terms of helping him get away with it. So, And look, she'd been an informant for a long time, hadn't she? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she'd been I mean, an informant back in 1995 and then read yeah. it again. So, I mean, this wasn't like it was her first rodeo. She'd been doing it for a long time. Again, which which says to me that the police had sort of softened her up the first time and then went back and then went back again. And she'd become so immune to the, the, the you know, the, the pretzel twisting sort of moral... Um, um. <laughs> turpitude that she was finding herself in that um she just said oh well yeah it's it's it is for the greater good whereas now we know 15 years on um the two two major convictions already fallen over hundreds more to come and one of this country's you know biggest gangsters on the verge of getting an appeal which might you know wipe everything off his off his already long record look i'm sure they're lining him up for another bunch of charges in the eventuality that he does get you know, true. Look, he's. <laughs> I don't think there's any risk that Tony Mockbell's going to be walking away scot free or getting released from prison anytime soon. I think that. Um, I just don't think that's going to happen. But everything, everything you've said is completely right, Tim. It is. It's an extraordinary situation, and it was this kind of pretzel twist of morality, but a pretzel twist of morality in my mind, certainly on both sides of the fence here. And. A damage to the Victorian justice system, I would say, significant. Given you know everything that's come out um, in terms of what she did, what the police did, um, you know, what, what what do you think? Where do you, where do you think that damage has been most keenly felt? Well, I'm obviously in Victoria, and it's that type of damage that's quite hard to measure, isn't it? You know, that kind of loss of faith. It's not necessarily quantifiable. In and I, you know, a way to determine, but it's just, it's a loss of faith in the police. It's a loss of faith in the justice system, um, and I do think that there's a huge degree of cynicism that's probably travelled across the country, even here to Western Australia. I mean, the death of Roger Rogerson's kind of brought some of it all up again. And look, in my mind, the fact that no one in the Victorian police has been charged doesn't really help that sense of um, overall justice that people may well feel. So, yeah, it's it has had a profound impact, particularly in Victoria, but I think across the country. Lessons learned, you would hope there would be many, but, um, I mean, what do you think, well, the justice system in Australia in general can can take or learn from the, from the Gobbo case? Don't defecate where you sleep. <laughs> Look, I think obviously the ends don't always justify the means. Um, that 
seems to be this very simplistic approach that a lot of people, and particularly the Victorian polices, adopted, as well as Gobbo herself. But yeah, the ends don't always justify the means. And I think you've got to remember that no one is above the law. Um, I mean, look, there's still, I guess, a bit of space for that one. But um, I think it was also a a timely reminder for some lawyers as well to take a step back because it is easy, as you said, to become immersed in your case. Um, it is easy to become obsessive and ultimately it's not your fight um, and it must be, the evidence must tell the story. So evidence that's properly obtained. Um, so, yeah, as you said, there are lots of lessons to be gained from all of this. And as Catherine's mentioned, no police have been charged over the so-called Nicola Gobbo slash Lawyer X scandal. But Nicola Gobbo hasn't been charged either yet, although uh, it would appear that at least three cases might be considering to be brought against her at some stage. If they are, we, of course, will follow them very closely. Catherine, thanks so much for sparing some of your precious time with us this morning on Court in the Act. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thanks again to our ever-growing audience on YouTube and on all good places where you get your podcasts, any of which you can get in touch with us by writing to Court in the Act at wanews.com.au. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and tell your mates and your mum. And remember, if you want to know what's going on in court, don't get caught short. Get caught in the act instead. See you next week. 